let's first get rid of this word lecture which I think is becoming more and more inappropriate as time goes on because really on the level on which we want to share spiritual knowledge on the level of the heart nobody knows any more or any less than anybody else so we're all starting from that point the only thing is that some people are a little bit more articulate than others or have the gift of the gab or whatever you like to call it I think on account of this the feeling that, that I get about what is demanded of the situation is that these exchanges should be more and more celebrations rather than actual lectures which is a sort of one way process and really they should be exchanges and I'm hoping that, that we will have time and occasion to exchange quite a lot before the end of the evening I don't know how you feel when you do give talks but I'm finding it very important to do very very little actual preparation for talks in, a, in the traditional way um, these days I think it can be quite a mistake to plan any kind of schedule because so much more of the exchanges of this sort are becoming channeling from one sort or another and uh, one just blocks that if you, if you have too rigid a picture of what's going to come through also, I'm, I'm very much a nursery child in this whole field, actually, because although I've been working very hard in a group which, which channels uh, directly from the spiritual world, it rubs off on you. I think anybody who's had experience with it knows that it does rub off on you and that you do gradually begin to find that you're developing capacities simply almost by infection rather than learning, which you didn't in the least know you had or were likely to develop. And that has been, I'm very grateful to say, happening to me more and more the last 12 or 15 months. Consequently, this also opens up a kind of expectancy, and you know pretty well that in one way or another, what you're supposed to be saying, what is demanded by the situation that you say, quite apart from your own freedom of action altogether, is said to you pretty definitively in one way or another. And when I woke up this morning and suddenly discovered that I was emerging from a dream which was spot on the subject we're supposed to be talking about tonight it, it moved me very deeply but it didn't altogether now surprise me that this was happening because you, you also have an instrument of, um, of transmission of these things as time goes on one thing that I think it is very important to realise is that in this whole process one must, it's exceedingly important to, to keep your freedom of action the the, the situation in this age which is so overlighted by Michael is that he constantly says the Archangel Michael we can do nothing without your initiative with your initiative we can do everything but without it we can do nothing and so you create the path Michael is constantly saying now we simply guide it we fill it with its content but you actually create it you give it its form you choose the path you're going to go there's no need to worry about making mistakes because every mistake opens up another channel it's just as well if you begin to get some sort of intuition that there is a better way <laughs> perhaps, but not that it's absolutely essential that you should always be spot on right in what you, in what you choose in detail to do about the spiritual initiative you begin to get a sense for that as you do it we're in a time of action now 
Rudolf Steiner, for instance, said in a, in a reading the other day that whereas when he gave his uh, work, that everything was really aimed towards structure. That's to say that it was necessary for human beings to develop an inner structure of soul in order to be able to be open to transmission to the spiritual world. Now that structure is, if it hasn't been formed already, well, it's too late. Those who those who have done it have done it, and those who haven't must choose other paths, but that structure is there for good or evil now, and in a way, the acceleration of the spiritual process has gone on so long that there's no more time to do that. So, in a certain way, not throw your books away entirely, but at least realize that the teachings of the 19th century are now beginning to lose a certain weight, that's how he put it. Because what is now coming through is not for structure, it's for action. There is a time when spiritual information and channelings are in order to come directly into our intuition and to our power of direct action out of the spirit. So all these things are very relevant to, to what we want to talk about this evening. As a background, as a, as a frame of reference for the way in which what we're going to talk about comes through. It might be just as well if I tried to put into words as near as I can what I was actually going through about 12 hours ago when I woke up realizing that something was being said that needed to be said. Not that it was necessarily the central theme, but, but certainly that it was a, a good starting off point. I found myself actually listening to a being whom I now realize to have been Mary, I'll talk about which Mary in a minute, talking to me about what the real relationship was to the awakening feminine of what men can now contribute to that. There's an enormous amount of misunderstanding about it, partly because of the rigidity of the scientific view of this. And she was talking in a very tender and gentle way about what a man actually does sexually in relationship to a woman. And saying that, that it was a complete misunderstanding that the man was a, a kind of equal partner to the woman in the production of children. It's completely a misunderstanding. This function is purely to stimulate. And his genetic constitution is such that right down to the cellular level, what he can contribute out of his cellular constitution, his genetic constitution, stimulates highly selectively what a woman can then create. But what is created is solely created out of the woman. It's not created by the man and the woman at all. The reason why this kind of dream came to me and why this kind of communication is coming through more and more from the, the feminine soul of the earth is that Mary, bless her heart, is beginning to wake up. She hasn't been awake. She's been asleep for 2,000 years. She had that particular incarnation of Mary Magdalene. And what she's been doing since, I really don't know. I neither remember nor have I read anything about that. But certainly, she's very much present now, and in a very active and very awake kind of way. I frequently get pictures of her these days, in which she's sitting up, literally rubbing her eyes, so, 
You don't push me too fast. I'm only just awake. You know, she's 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 being stimulated and drawn out by the Michaelic consciousness, this this male sword carrying consciousness that's coming down as usual, as the countenance of the Christ says, the second coming proceeds. And and it's all very new to her. She's been through the most terrible experiences for 2,000 years. She's been trying to catch up with the crucifixion. She was was utterly demeaned and rejected by the early church. Paul couldn't stand her and all that. It was all that side of things during her life as Mary Magdalene. And they were all very jealous, and they, they were actually jealous that Jesus told her so much more than he, than he told them, than, than he told them, except during the time between the ascension, the resurrection and the ascension. But she took part in that as well, I think. But anyway, the whole history of the church, we needn't get into all that, and the politicking and the alteration of the teaching to fit in with the ideas of Constantine and the whole way in which the church was geared to be a political means of controlling large populations and establishing a priestly cult. All that uh, is past history now. The cause of what is now happening in the Second Coming and the relationship of the feminine to that. So there is Mary waiting and conveying the beginnings of an entirely new wisdom right in the heart of the Christ in Paul. It's as if slowly everything that was given way back before the Christian era through Isis, through the Sophia, through the earth being itself on a very unconscious level is now individualized, is becoming increasingly individualized and is waking up. So that the, the whole heart, the soul of this this theme, Christ and the feminine, really consists in our trying to come to terms with, with a Christianity which is going into an entirely new phase. The next thing we, we could we could say is that there is a, a big difference between the way in which we experience the Christ now and the way in which the Christ was experienced at the time of Jesus. Paul gave a very clear indication at the time to, uh, of what the experience was that made the Christ event unique 2,000 years ago in his road to Damascus. What was Paul like? He was obviously a person who depended very, very much for his own amour propre on social standing, on having a position in the society in which he lived. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a Greek scholar, he was thoroughly versed in all the, the, the philosophical attitudes of the day, and he was extraordinarily self self-doubting, he had an enormous inferiority complex, which was all tied up with his uh, wish to be in the lead in any of the sort of cultural things of his day. And when he had this experience on the road to Damascus, in the middle of his persecution of the whole Christian heresy as it was regarded by the Jews, he had the experience 
as an absolute attack on his own sense of self, it was so violent that it said that he was even knocked off his horse. He simply collapsed to the ground in complete, in a complete change of consciousness. He heard this voice. It must have been like a kick from a horse, right in the solar plexus. He, he was absolutely horrified and shocked, really, by the violence of the experience. And apart from the words, why persecuted thou me, whatever it was he went through, made him say forever afterwards that the experience of being an ego, an ego being an I, somebody could say I, I am, I Paul say this, became utterly meaningless to him unless he was experiencing it as the Christ saying it. So he kept saying, not I, but the Christ in me. And out came all the Greek philosophy, and he thought and he thought and he thought, he worried it over this whole business. And the epistles are, are are a, a, a sort of medley of, of, uh, of an attempt to integrate philosophical thinking with something that just doesn't fit in with them at all. He's constantly trying to persuade himself, arguing with himself all the time about it, and getting a lot of it wrong. And a lot of it also, of course, must have been, uh, must have been changed. But there are, there are certain passages in the epistles where where this neurotic side comes out as well and where he keeps saying to himself I'm absolutely nothing, I'm less than nothing I'm absolutely appalling, I'm not even the personality that you should begin to look at as a human being of any validity at all He was. it wasn't really so much in the first place taking on the full statue of the Christ and being the Christ it was trying to get rid of this personality which was both so necessary to his self-respect and at the same time of which he was so utterly ashamed it was appalling. And also, he had at the same time a feeling that women had nothing whatever to do with any of this. And like Peter, he totally really rejected the whole female relationship to the phenomenon. But the, the predominant thing was that he was the right person to do all this. It's always the right person. He was the right person. The more awful you are, the more you're the right person, very often what needs to be done at a particular spiritual moment. Our weaknesses are vital to what we, in fact, are chosen to do, because they're the, the other side, they're the personality side of the characteristic strengths we require to bring through what the spiritual world really needs at that moment. I think any, any human being who is on a spiritual path can look at their own particular foibles and realize that without them they couldn't do their proper work. And this was certainly true of Paul, and it was true of Peter, too. I mean, fussy, um, arrogant. He must have been unbearable, Peter, because he, he, was, he was always, he always knew best. He realized <laughs> what to do. And without it, how could you be the rock upon which the church was built? You must know that you're right. You must know that you're right. It must be in your will nature to know that you're right, if you're to carry that. And that's what he did. John's just saying that John had weight. John relating only to love, to nothing else. Pictures in the medieval paintings of him with his head leaning towards the breast of the Christ, listening. What is he listening to? What he was really listening to, it sounds a little bit irrever irreverent, forgive me, was, it's your turn next, brother. Two thousand years time, you'll be doing well. With a difference, because it'll be on a different level, and the Christ will not be coming into the physical, he'll be coming into the etheric. 
in, in my incarnation, said Jesus, it, it's a physical matter, but in yours it won't be. You'll be there in all human beings. You'll be on the etheric level. And by that time, the hearts will be thinking. It won't be the heads thinking at all. It'll be the hearts that are thinking. So develop your heart. Your heart forces listen to your heart. Because he was all the time. All the time that he was a disciple, and all the time later on that he was writing these wonderful and pathetic things. He was listening. Come heart. So there, there, those were the three churches. There was the, the first stage, which had to be a social matter, which was a rock upon which the church was built, which could spread. It, it was the right foundation for anything that would, would have to spread politically. And then Paul's thing, which didn't come into its own until the, the Reformation, until the Renaissance, when a new soul organ was born in mankind, which we can call the consciousness soul of mankind, in which uh, what was a social matter and all human matter had to become individualized. So the, the roots and foundation of the evangelical experience was born then. And now that's coming to an end, just as the Catholic thing came to an end, really, in the Reformation, essentially. So the evangelical thing is coming to an end now, because the third church is being born. And that church is really based on the experience of the heart, the experience of love, and of the thinking heart. Now, what's this got to do with Christ and feminism? It's a very essential thing, it's very essentially related to it. Rudolf Steiner gave the clue to me years and years and years ago when he said, when the second coming is really underway, you'll begin to realize that whereas at the time of Jesus, Christ came into the thinking, which is why Paul was so essential at that time, next time, it will not be the thinking at all, it will be the memory. Which is a very mysterious thing to say. To me, the memory, well, what is it that we're going to remember? What is it that we are remembering? Where, does our, where is our memory really seated? Who has the real inlook into the, into the nature of memory? Clearly, it's something that is not related to the conceptualizing process, which is a very male thing. Something that's related to the unconscious. It emerges as out of dream. We, we don't remember in the, with the clarity in which we experience the present moment in the world. We remember out of waking from dreams. It's then that we have the nearest to the experience. Oh, if only I could recapture that, I would know really what, who I am, what, what it's all about. And it eludes us. And it comes very much nearer to the experience of the earth, uh, rather than the heavens, of the unconscious rather than the conscious. It comes, as they are, to dream. And it's, it's the feminine half of us that is nearest to that realm. What did the, where, where did the, um, Pythonesses in the ancient mysteries get their knowledge. They didn't get it out of clear thinking. In fact, they deliberately put themselves into a state which was below the fully conscious thinking level. That's why they, Delphi, for instance, they sat over these horrible sulfur wells and breathed in this, these sulfur fumes um, in order to get themselves into a state of mind which was nearer to the, to the actual depths out of which this came. They were remembering back the Earth's own memories. 
Now we're in another in another state of mind. If we tried to do that, we'd kill ourselves physically. That's why the old methods of initiation are no longer appropriate because our bodies are too stiff. But in those days, when they were fluid, uh, the spiritual memories could come through that kind of channel. Now they have to come through the thinking. The thinking has to stimulate the memory. But the thoughts that we have to have are not the thoughts of the brain. The brain only reflects them. They're the thoughts of the heart as they take place in the world of the etheric, what, 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 is, what Jesus referred to as the world of the clouds when he came again the second time. And that's where the memories are. So what we're able to remember now, and it's the feminine heart of us that does this, is we begin to remember the nature of Christ instead of, uh, of conceptualizing it as connected with the ego. It's no longer, not I, but the Christ in me. Paul said, although that is still so, but it's, I can now begin to recall who I am as Christ, what aspect, what facet, what nuance of the Christ I am when I say not I but the Christ to you. This begins to come into the memory of this is Mary. This is who Mary is. Mary is the being who remembers what it is to be a human being in that Christ sense. A year ago, I was thinking very much that this depended, um, I was thinking much more along the lines that this depended entirely upon her having been through a whole succession of incarnations, perhaps not fully incarnate, but taking part in incarnations in which she did fully experience the fiction of the resurrection. I was feeling then that the experiences of those who had gone through the stigmata over the centuries were really the attempts on the part of the feminine half of humanity to catch up with what Christ went through on the cross. And I think this was so. I think there perhaps may have been men who experienced the stigmata, but there were far more women. The last one um, was a French peasant who only died about ten years ago in the southeast of France. Uh, her name's gone. She was a Marie too. And she had lived on the host entirely for 50 years. She, she, no other food passed her lips except natural sacrament, which was daily. Every weekend she went through the entire crucifixion, bleeding and everything. Every single week. She was only able to communicate with other human beings on Wednesdays and Thursdays each week. And people came to see her, of course, from all over the world. And the Catholic Church took it up, as they do in all these cases, uh, and, and various places, I can't remember what to call them. Um, anyway, they were, they were more or less convents, where she was the saint of the convent. She hasn't been canonized yet, I should she possibly will be. That process still goes on in the Catholic Church in another 20 or 30 years. But um, she the people who visited her were from all religions and non-religions of the world. Um, she wasn't widely known, but, but hundreds of thousands of people went to see her. And it's, it's interesting to know what it was they actually experienced. And I think it was this, this feeling that, that they had that at last uh, a process <coughs> was going to come to an end now, because, all, because my feeling is that she was the last she really was the last human being to go through that experience. 
and that it's now not a necessary experience because the second coming being now in full apocalyptic life, the, the experiences in Christ that are relevant are not those of, uh, not those of the Jesuits, for instance, of the path of the, the twelve stations of the cross, going through the whole agony on a physical level of what the death and resurrection were. Death, really, because it, the resurrection plays so little part, really, relatively in the Catholic Church. And it is the resurrected Christ that we're now talking about. Now, when we're saying this uh, about uh, Mary and about the, the feminine half of humanity, it, it's quite clear, isn't it? At least it certainly should be quite clear that we're not just talking about the feminine in women. We're talking about the feminine in everybody. And we're also talking about the masculine in women. We're talking about the necessary move towards not actual androgyny but the experience of, of androgyny of the meeting within our own soul life of what is masculine with what is feminine and it is it, it's not this experience of the memory of the Christ experience which comes about through the, the second coming is not something that is confined to women but in a very great degree it is something that has to begin there. It begins with women, it begins with the, the feminine experience in men. And necessarily means that that which is feminine and that which is masculine in each of us comes to a new kind of inner understanding in our own soul life. Obviously this has enormous implications in the whole life of relationships the question of human relationships, the question of the difficulties of human relationships, of what is expected, has been expected over the last decades out of human relationships as we've become more self-conscious, self-aware. And how many people who've never heard of Mary and never heard of, of really, who've never approached this whole area of Christian esotericism are also, on a purely psychological level, quite sure that the main, what has mainly been missing in the development of the life of relationships and the changing of marriage, for instance, over the last decade, has been due to the fact that people have unconsciously, but now more and more consciously, expected that the partner they choose is going to make up the deficiency, is going to meet in them that which they can't find for themselves. And most relationships break down in one way or another on that particular show. And the, the real reason for the uh, approach of an androgynous experience is to make it possible for human beings who meet in order to relate very closely to another human being to be already on the way towards an independence, a fulfillment within their own soul, that soul life of what is masculine and what is feminine. So that what they they do when they meet a partner is to bring, not to take, is to bring a fully integrated personality towards another fully integrated personality, at least a potential, at least that both should understand that that is the object to be exercised, and that they are not going, in fact, if they're women, to, to get their masculine half dealt with by the man, or, or the other way around as well. They are not going to, in fact, put a weight on um, the other human being of their own characteristic inadequacies. They're going to, in fact, meet on a level of, of two human beings 
who potentially are fully integrated in themselves. Only when you don't need each other are you fit to have each other. In fact. <laughs> That's what it really amounts to. <laughs> the need becomes then a, a much higher need. It's the need to meet fully another human being who the polarity is still there, but it's not a polarity. It, the relationship no longer depends utterly on the, on the polarity. It depends on the, the understanding of the polarity in both parts. That brings me back, I think, fairly near to where I began. That Mary, this morning, woke me by saying, that what a man brings to a woman is the atom-by-atom atom stimulus of her creative capacity which shows itself in its completely outward form as his genetic constitution. And but, but that genetic constitution is simply a kind of blueprint of what is there in his soul nature unique to him and unique to the partnership and it's not capable of stimulating anything in the woman in, in her creative capacity which he himself doesn't possess so it, it is what the geneticists say is that it's purely genetics that, that, um, that, that says in advance which human beings are going to integrate in that kind of way it's only true as a mechanical blueprint. It isn't true on the soul level. Uh, it raises the big question whether we can transcend our own genetic constitution or not. Clearly, on some levels, we can. If we reach an integration in ourselves and balance the masculine and feminine in us first, then the blueprint that we bring as a, as a genetic constitution is um, only a starting point. It's a jumping off point. It's something that can become more universal in both of us. The temperaments, then, autosmus. So long as we have the feeling that when we form a relationship, where we want to, we want, in other words, we want to make up for our own deficiencies in this wonderful being we've met, the tendency is to tie up with people who are very much the opposite of ourselves. If we attain an inner balance to some degree, We've probably more got the inclination then to have relationships with people who are a little bit more like us. Because we are then meeting something that we very well understand and can go further with. If um, we are treating the other human being as the unknown factor, we're simply substituting her or him for the unknown factor in ourselves. And this is where temperament becomes extremely important. Do you know about the four temperaments? Shall we just sort of go through them? The choleric, the sanguine, the phlegmatic, and the melancholic. These four traditional temperaments. They're very much related, actually, to the four levels of cheese. The um, melancholic temperament is very much related to the physical body, where the physical body itself, which means the bones, the actual physical matter, it predominates. The melancholic people tend to be rather tall, the, the, the absolute typical uh, melancholic is the El Greco painting. You know, can picture what those people were like with their long faces, 
long heaviness, long bones, that's men and the women. The physical body in its mineral constitution predominates in the melancholic. Why is he melancholic? Why is he sad? Because there is a certain sadness in the separate, total separation from the spiritual world that an almost totally mineralized body leads to. He's not always sad, and he has the, the tremendous capacity, of course, of compassion, memory, and, and the longevity of the earth. The choleric is connected not with the physical body, but with the opposite pole, the ego. It's the ego that predominates in the choleric temperament. It's I, I, I all the way. And, but, but not necessarily always negative by any manner of means, but it does lead to those soul qualities which are more characteristic of, of the ego, particularly the anger. The, 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 the assertion of the ego is the angry thing that a human being can do. Often very red-haired, often short in stature, red-faced, the army, the peppery army colonel type is one form of the choleric sentiment. Then in between, the sanguine, who is related to the astral body, the butterfly, the, the person never able to concentrate for five minutes on, on a particular thing, always hopping for, for the next flower, full of artistic potential very often. If it goes wrong, never able to stick to anything. Uh, and yet at the same time, the, the, the decoration, the essential artistic colouring and decoration for others, perhaps there are more sanguine women than men, I don't know. I don't think, no, perhaps it's pretty well equally balanced. Sanguine men are very often the, the artists. Very often sanguine men are homosexual. It, it seems to go with it. Yeah, or can. And finally the phlegmatic. And the phlegmatic is the chewer of cuds. The, the human being who lives always in the etheric processes. Often very stocky, sometimes quite fat. The ideal candidate for meditation Never to be diverted from something once, once taken on. Slow, systematic, rhythmic acquisition of knowledge and wisdom and depth and, and, and substance, etheric life substance. Wonderful temperament to have. Wonderful nursery class teachers are made from phlegmatic. Uh, never to be ruffled by the vagaries of children, because small children are always sanguine. Uh, the sanguine and phlegmatic fit in very well in that way, just as the melancholic and choleric do. They, they counterpoise each other. But can you see what I mean? That if the feminine and masculine things in the soul are integrated rightly, it would be very, very, very wise, very stimulating, very good for people of the same temperament to marry. If you're, if you're happy with being sanguine and are not always looking for what sanguine is, then what wonderful things you can share with another sanguine. If there's no guilt attached to sanguinity, it's wonderful. If there is guilt attached to it, then it's always looking for opportunities to be melancholic. And if a spoiled sanguine uh, is ruined by, by parents, very often there's a, there's a strong neurotic melancholic streak comes out the opposite thing. Um, if there's a, because the opposition, I, I said that um, choleric and melancholic were opposite, they are in one sense, but you can see that there are other pairings that are equally opposite, equally opposed. If the melancholic man becomes guilty and feels that he's missing all the best of the gaiety and lightness of life, how wonderful to have a sanguine wife. 
But, at least that's what he thinks. <laughs> but, it, but it usually goes wrong because she can't stand the weight and she can't stand the solemnity. And he can't stand her butterfly characteristics in the end. But if both are, met, if both are, are satisfied with their melancholia, have reached an inner balance, then how wonderful to experience the depths of the sadness of the separation of spirits together and support that in each other in the polarity of sexuality. I think this is a wonderful theme, um, and I think there's an enormous future for, for understanding this as the second coming of the Christ advances, when femininity is becoming more and more conscious all the time, and out of the earth wisdom is able to lead men back into the kind of balance that they lost. The great, the great risk, the great um, illness that could happen to this feminine upsurge, of course, is when, when there's a tremendous and horrible swing of the pendulum towards a kind of matriarchal view of relationship and, and, and human life, because men have had it their own way so long. And some of those negative things are what we see in, in the feminist movement in its less acceptable phase. And very often you find that the uh, that some of the what if I may say so the worst of the green and common, common type of woman is more masculine than feminine on the whole. Very aggressive, very rejecting of feminine characteristics. Uh, and and it, it could be quite a shock, couldn't it, to a lot of women who are banding together in the rejection of men in this way, if they realise just what it is that's causing them to do this and how it is in fact the awakening of the feminine aspect of the earth that is leading them to have had these experiences and to try and make sense of them at first. The expression the bride of Christ what do we mean by that? What is this expectancy that's caused Mary's wake? The Christ descends from the direction of the sun Descending as he does now into the realm of the clouds, he brings out everything in us which has been foreshadowed and forecast by that which was brought in the ancient mysteries as the Apollonian heart of life. The, the descent of the understanding of the heavens through philosophy, through concept and altogether through light which comes through into the thinking. It's as if there was a huge golden dome overhead, out of which the Apollonian wisdom descends on mankind. And the reason it's had to be that men have dominated the whole of our Western culture for so long is that this Apollonian sun wisdom takes a long, long time to work through the earth work penetrate into the earth's nature. And inevitably there comes a point where the whole nature realm begins to respond to this. And the waking of Mary is not just the waking of the, the Isis being herself, the Sophia Gaia being herself, the being of the earth, who's definitely returning from Hades, as it were, to take over her kingdom again. It's not just that, it's the waking of the whole of the elemental realm as well. So, coupled with this 
sun's radiant wisdom coming in, which approached us through our heads, and then is gradually now descending through our speech organs, becoming more and more articulated speech, and finally resting in the heart, where the heart itself begins to have the thoughts that made the world, which is the end product of the whole thinking process that descends from the sun region. This is responded to by the awakening of the earth itself as the bride to to contain this all this light and to transform the earth from below up. What is precisely then the relationship between Michael and Mary? That's really the question. When I say Michael, I really am talking about what is spoken of in both the old and new testaments of the countenance of the Lord. Why does the Lord need a countenance? Those who look upon the face of the gods die, they say, but it's not quite like that. It's also a question of energy, that the whole process of becoming more and more human is a matter of refinement of energy, being able to rise onto a higher and higher plane. And the full force of the sun being who descended as Christ would simply burn us up on all levels. It needs stepping down. And Michael, Marduk, as she was called, is always the being who took upon himself the job of stepping down the village so that when you looked into the face of Michael, you were looking into the face of Christ, but it, at, to a degree that made it possible for that not to be destructive as well. We can bear to look at Michael, but we couldn't altogether bear to look into the eyes of the sun. That's what the said. So, the acceptable faith of the Christ is what we see It's sword is a wonderful concept. It's a multifunctional thing. It's that which pierces us to the quick in our hearts. It's that which doesn't allow us to sleep, doesn't allow us, if you like, to escape from the full implications of, if you like, the road to master experience. But it's also that which rests upon the neck of the dragon. Mark this, but it doesn't kill the dragon. It rests upon the neck of the dragon. Sometimes the pictures portray the foot, his foot on the neck of the dragon. Swords as well. Why is the dragon not to be killed? Because the dragon, in that sense, is those forces um, which give the necessary degree of automatism to the world. We don't have to keep our own world in existence. At this stage, it would be impossible for us to do that. One day, we will have to. And at that time, the dragon will be released. In the Scandinavian myth, they refer to this being as the Fenris Wolf. The Fenris Wolf, in the Scandinavian, I think it's in the Edders, the Old Edders, is described as a being who is in captivity to the elemental world. Each hair of the Fenris Wolf has on its vast earthwide skin is held by one small element. 
of the entire, it's also, of course, the description of the atomic theory. It is the atomic theory, victoriously expressed. The world is held together by a process which unwinds at entropy is. If you let go all those hairs, that would blow being, then the world would disappear in one enormous nuclear explosion. It would implode. But the whole process it unwinds like a clock to the end of time. If it were not so, we should have to do it. We've got other jobs so that the existence of the dragon or tennis horse is necessary. And Michael holds that steady. That's his primary responsibility in the old days to do that. Now gradually, as man becomes more conscious, Michael's gesture alters. Steiner put it by at a certain point, Michael, still holding the sword on the dragon's deck, turns the other hand to Beckham. We're ready for you now. If you can take certain steps now, he says to humanity, there's the possibility of responding. The balance has reached such a point now. Lucifer is more or less disposed of. We, can, we, we can't entirely write him off yet, but that's to say all the impulses of man which wished fundamentally to go up in a glorious spiral of irresponsibility and leave the earth behind the whole concept of nirvana. Let it all go, you know, yeah, don't like the world. It was created by the devil anyway. This is the, the Qatar heresy. Let, let it go. It's not worth bothering with. The exact opposite of what the Christ was said, which was, every lamb into the sheepfold before the door is shut, and the other thing he said was, the whole world has to be redeemed atom by atom uh, before the new, new Jerusalem can come into existence, or the city of gold can appear, which is the same thing as straw to gold, really, the Rumpelstiltskin thing. Know the names is what Rumpelstiltskin fairy tale says, isn't it? If you know my name, I, I, you have power over Otherwise, I can insist forever and ever that you must personally transform every atom of um, the physical world into spiritual substance. Very complicated thing, but it's, um, it, it, it's very necessary to understand. But Michael then draws us towards not the dragon he beckons, it's us. He's reached a sufficient point of balance. We are no longer as tempted as we were to repudiate the reality of the earth in a Lucifer's way. So Michael, in a, in a way, replaces Lucifer. He is now the light, the ruler of the cosmic intelligence. It's he who brings the light rather than Lucifer now. We can, we mustn't entirely think that we've conquered Lucifer. We've conquered the temptations of beauty and adoration and bliss and ecstasy, which are, uh, and sexuality, which are all the things that Lucifer brings. Those things are they're, they're, they're wonderful gifts and great if they are in balance and control, but if they're not, they can still remove us from the realm of responsibility into a spiral of ecstasy in the environment. But we now have the possibility, through Michael, of, of experiencing that the world through our hearts entirely in, in a conceptual form, and it's this that makes it safe at last for the, for the world to awake. It made it, the funny way to put it, it's, it made it safe for the second coming to begin. The second coming could begin 
but caused piecemeal gradually. Human beings had evolved to the point where it was possible for the right to go again. It became possible at that point of balance. It couldn't have become before Michael had stepped in um, into Lucifer's place in this way. But now he has done so, it then became possible for Christ to come again. Michael is his herald. Mary awakes because of this. Who is she? She is the Grail. She is the living substance which arises from below to meet the descending Apollonian sun rising. And what is it that we can do cause this awakening? It means that the Dionysian element, which is the opposite of the Apollonian, not the hierophantic sun wisdom, but the transforming of the earth into the knowledge, the alchemist path, the path of transformation of substance into gold, straw into gold, that can now happen in safety because she awakes. We really can perform our alchemical transformation of the earth, the sacramental transformation of the earth, because she is beginning to wake. Otherwise it becomes magic. It remains magic. And it's not magic. Well, it is, but it's, it's magic in consciousness. It's not just, it's not mumbo jumbo magic. It's not the magic that, um, that really doesn't understand the processes of love, that is only interested in power. It's what Merlin had to learn, and it's why Ninoe could have imprisoned him. It's why uh, Vivian, or Ninoe, was able to, to capture his, his wisdom. It was, it was a premature thing there. But now we can experience the Nimue force as integrated into the whole. I mean, Merlin can wait properly and get on with his, his magic now because he's, he's no longer subject to the Luciferic aspects of the And he is awakened from that. The path of the alchemist is the opposite of the path of the Hierophant. And, uh, and many people are on that path of the below upwards nation. Whereas up till this present age, Really, it was only possible to do this by the hierophant. Sun and earth. And it also presages the fact that in the far, far future, the sun and the earth will be united. The energies of the sun and the energies of the earth will once more come together. 